Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode 223, and this episode was recorded in Bridgeport, Connecticut. My guests on this episode are Selma, Miriam, and Noelle Fury. They are the founders of Bloodroot. It is a vegetarian and vegan restaurant in Bridgeport, and it has a feminist bookstore And they have been participating in radical feminism for over 40 years. The restaurant was founded in the 1970s, so it too has been around for 40 years. And it has been an organizing site. And it's a place where you'll hear in this episode a number of very well-known feminist writers and poets and activists have come to Bloodroot. They've had a really fascinating history, and they've been all around the world, and they have a really interesting mission. And so this was a real treat to get to hang out with them and to learn their story and to share their story with you. I think this is the first episode where we've featured people in and from Connecticut. I'm trying to think back. Yeah, I think this is it. But, you know... Things are starting to open up again. We are vaccinated. And so when we're not on these big trips, we're looking for things that we can do on the weekend. Bridgeport's about, eh, I guess it should take about an hour and a half drive from New York City, but it's New York City and there's quite a lot of traffic in Connecticut. So about a two hour drive, but not so bad. And a really interesting place with a lot of history. And it's enticing me to explore more stuff in Connecticut within driving distance. So if you are ever in Connecticut or in the sort of like tri-state area, I would suggest going to Bloodroot. We had lunch before we got to sit down with them and it was really great. And yeah, talk to them. There's there's a, a list or like a poster on the wall with people that have eaten there from like over 70 countries. It's really interesting. So word gets around. And they also have uh, produced... A cookbook and a couple other books and pamphlets and things like that that I'm sure has helped to to get the word out about the restaurant over the past 40 years. But this was a, a real treat for us. So you'll hear my voice, you will hear uh, Selma, Noel, and you will also hear Leslie in this episode again. Go to the show notes for this episode and you will find a link to my Patreon account. That is a subscription-based service where you can give monthly And you'll get some cool kickbacks like shirts and the zines I produce and stickers and possibly things from around the world. There will also be a link to the Bloodroot website. And uh, there's an Instagram account too that you can uh, follow. I don't know how often they update that one, but uh, the website is current with current menu and media and stuff like that. All right. Enjoy this conversation with Selma and Noel. Well, listen, I appreciate this. This is really wonderful. Um, <laughs> we, I feel like I've said this a hundred times at this point, but we get to record this all around the world in places that feel really special. Mm-hmm. And this feels really special. So I'm appreciative of you making us <laughs> uh, available in this space. So thank you so much. Sure. Yes, sure. 
Yeah, we're delighted to meet you. Are you both originally from Connecticut? Yes. Whereabouts? <laughs> well, let's see. I uh, grew up in Norwalk and a little bit in Westport, Reading, sort of around the state. Spent okay. some time in New York. Mm-hmm. And actually, I was born in New York in the Bronx, but my parents came here when I was six months old. So. Okay. So all you've known is Connecticut. Oh. <laughs> well, lived in New York after I got married. Oh, okay. For, yeah. A couple of years. They were not good years. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm glad to be back here. <laughs> yeah. Um, So what brought you, I guess, to Bridgeport? Was it this place? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Okay, we were looking for a place to have a restaurant and bookstore and a sort of meeting place for women, okay? And the places that I saw were um, old donut houses and, you know, just awful places. and, And then we saw this place, which was not a restaurant. There was no kitchen. There were no windows, okay? But it was on the water, and I thought, oh, mm. that's so wonderful. And everybody said, nobody will ever get here. I mean, you, you found it, so you know. you got to turn right, turn left. And, and there was no GPS in 1977. So we spent a lot of our time answering the phone and trying to explain, take your second left, your first right, your third left. And it was <laughs> exactly what would get you here. Yeah. But people didn't believe it. And they'd get to the end of the street, and they'd there's nothing here, you know. Yeah. Well, pull into the parking lot and, and you're here. But it just seemed very special to to be on the water and to have a place for a garden and a place to sit outside. And that just, I, I didn't know people would come, but they did. Yeah. That was 44 years ago? Yes. What was Bridgeport like 44 years ago? Has it changed a lot? It has changed some. Uh the neighborhood, the whole of Bridgeport seems somewhat better. I live in the west side, which is not far from here. From uh, This is a Black Rock section. And Black Rock section now is, is sort of up and coming. A lot of kind of hip young people are buying houses in here or <coughs> condominiums and the like. Uh, so I would say in general, things are somewhat better. Um, what do you think? You think? I, I don't know. Um, I just There's, see in my neighborhood. Yes, yes. You know, let me talk about oh, my yeah, own neighborhood where right. I live because uh, there are several houses around where I am. And in each house, there are different nationalities of people living. Mm. And in many cases, they've bought the houses. They're immigrants who have managed to get things together and have bought their houses. And therefore, they're taking good care of them. And the neighborhood is looking really good. Yeah. There was a period of time when it was not, you know. Um, and so... Uh, for me, things are better in that way. And as I come here, I see, you know, various parts of Bridgeport that seem somewhat, certainly better than the 70s. Mm. Yeah. So, and that's a good thing. I, maybe I'm, I'm wrong with this, but I think of it because of its proximity to water. We worked in Red Hook for a while, which was uh, also on the water, mm. but a place that had a lot of uh, shipping and uh, the dockyards and things like that. And that had all kind of dried up, which obviously right. then leads to poverty. It, was that similar here? You know, Bridgeport was a, a very much an industrial city when my father huh. came here. He owned a fabric store, and, he, and they were all Eastern European immigrants, and he figured they would sew their own clothes, and that's why he came here. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And that was true, but um, I don't know. Recently, politically, mm. Bridgeport has not been wonderful, but there are all kinds of wonderful things in Bridgeport that people do not know about, okay? There's a, uh, should I tell you about them now? Oh, yeah, yeah. that'd be great. <laughs> so 
there's bring a, you, back. you know, the, there's a lot of old factories along the railroad tracks, and there's this mongers, yeah, it's a thing. Um, mongers, yeah. Yeah, whatever it is. And so <laughs> this guy must have bought this huge old factory, and he rents it out only on Sunday to people who are selling things, and they're always old things. And it is an amazing thing. You know, it's so much better than any tag sale or, you know, yard thing. Uh, real quality things, and somebody will specialize in, in glasses, colored glasses, or, um, or old measuring tools, you know. And, it, and it's, it's just wonderful. That's one wonderful thing that people who, who don't live in Bridgeport don't know about. I didn't know about for a long time. Well, we used to be open on Sunday, so I couldn't go, you know, but... But it is a lot of fun to go there. Okay. And then uh, recently there's a um, Dutch bulk company called um, Color Blends. And they bought an old mansion in Bridgeport uh-huh. on the corner of Clinton and North, North yeah. Avenue. Mm-hmm. And right now it is in full bloom of tulips and daffodils. Mm-hmm. And it's gorgeous. And, and, you know, it's free. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you park on the street and there's labeled pass. It's not really big. It's a mm-hmm. city lot. Mm-hmm. And they have these beautiful, beautiful flowers, you know, that are for the people of Bridgeport. Mm. And the I house mean, is bright yellow. So it, yeah. it's just a beautiful thing to come upon. Oh. And of course, they're selling the bulbs in the fall. This is just a, a display garden. But and they're wonderful people. They come here and eat. So, you know, so that's a wonderful thing. And then there's um, Seaside Village which is near University of Bridgeport, uh, near uh, Seaside Park, okay? And that is uh, another old thing. In other words, in 1929 or, you know, First World War stuff, Bridgeport was this industrial city, so they were, you know, building, not bombs then, but, you know, things like that. Um, and, and the people <laughs> needed to be housed, and so they built these brick um, sort of attached houses with dormers, yeah, very small rooms, okay? And some of them were separate. And it's maybe mm, three square city blocks. It's not a very big thing. Um, and, and that's where these people lived. And for a long time, it was just tumble down. And then, I don't know how recently, but maybe eight or 10 years ago, they f- fixed it back up and uh, and it is beautiful, and you mm. get there, and it's not in a great neighborhood, it's off of Araniston Avenue, but you go and you look at it, and it looks like, if you've been to England, a Cotswold village. That's what it looks like. Wow. And it's the same architecture, and there's a sort of little central green, and it's exceedingly reasonably priced. So our Dutch bulb friend, came in one day, and we had these people coming and saying, oh, I just got a place in Seaside Village. And well, that's nice, but I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and she said, I'm buying a house, and it was $50,000 for this house. Wow. And so we wanted to see it, and we went to see it, and these two guys who also come here, and they have two different houses, and they had said to her, you've got to, you know, bid on this house. And so we saw their houses, and I couldn't get over how individual and different and how much they are like nothing I have seen anywhere but probably in in in, uh, in England you know it would be for it yeah it would be yeah yeah, yeah so 
you know, is these are wonderful, magical places I think people don't know about. You know, what they want to show you are the big, ugly buildings in Midtown and all the rest of that. The other thing that's really wonderful about Bridgeport is this uh, thing called Mercy Learning Center, which has been here for quite a long time. I don't know the origins of it. But it used to be a Catholic organization, and now it's secular. And what they do is they train women uh, from Immig this immigrant. country. Not only immigrants. Yeah. Uh, women, uh, Bridge, uh, Bridgeport uh, re uh, residents and also immigrants. Uh, they get them so they're at a place where they get their GEDs. They, oh, wow. them. they do everything with these women and train them really well. They don't, they, uh, what they learn when they come out of there is just amazing how to function in this culture, really, and they do a beautiful job. And we here at the restaurant have had several women come from there and work with us. Oh, wow. And uh, Layla, who's in the kitchen now, who's Ethiopian, comes through them. Uh, it is a wonderful, wonderful service. It's amazing. They help take care of the children. They help them get their driver's license, their citizenship. They get them through all those hoops that they have to go through. Yeah, wow. So, yeah, so it's, it's uh, just amazing to me that it exists. There's often a cycle with that type of thing. We've seen it in New York. We were just in Louisville recently um, where a, a place is, becomes a bit like post-industrial with all the old factories yes. and production and becomes artist spaces. People yes, move in because exactly. the rents are cheap. Right. But then <laughs> it comes full circle and that people start coming in because now it's an attractive place to be mm -hmm. and then the rents go back up. Yeah. Are there any symptoms of that at all here or...? I don't think so. Well, that's no, good then. No, no. But there is another old factory on the east side that, I mean, a gorgeous building, huge windows. And it's an artist's place hmm. where the artists, you know, they rent space. Studios, yeah. And studios, mm -hmm. and they have a, you know, a big show in the fall. Not this past fall, but I hope again. And it's so different from art exhibits like in Westport where I live where they're very you know, fancy type people uh, with very high prices. And here are these people and they each have this very large room with windows and they're beautiful. And you know, like I say, they pay rent for it, but it's just a wonderful thing. And there's people you know, doing music in the halls and everybody has some food. And you know, this is a different art show from what mm. I'm used to seeing in wealthier communities. It is a treasure. It is a treasure here in Bridgeport. A lot of people don't know about it. When you started the restaurant and the bookshop, were there a lot of like-minded people in, in the Bridgeport? area? Yeah. No. No. I don't uh, think anybody was like-minded. <laughs> <laughs> we jumped off a cliff. Yeah. I mean, pretty literally. And... Uh, and here we landed, and it was a very fortunate thing because we're still yeah. here 44 years later. But yeah, no. And I guess how uh, we started, and actually Selma sent out a whole bunch of mailers to friends and the like that this yeah. was happening. Yeah. And that's how we got people to come originally. And then mm -hmm. word of mouth, mm -hmm. right? What else? I, I think people who needed something like this, mm -hmm. who needed it to be vegetarian, not many people are vegetarian, okay. So they needed to come. I mean, the first Friday we were open, and I thought, nobody's going to come. The reason that we don't have a wait staff is because I thought, well, nobody's going to come. Nobody's going to find us. So I can't have people, you know, not making any money, you know. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we tell people to, you know, choose and go pick up your food. But that first Friday, there were people who came. And we had just put a little sign on, on Fairfield Avenue. Mm -hmm. There was some, you know, used furniture places, and we had bought used furniture and 
pictures, you know, not to put on the wall from them. And so people came. They just came. And it's kind of like, I think it, I think if you want to do something, you should find something that you really like and assume that there's other people like you who will want that, okay? And if that's true, they're going to find you because they need it. Mm. They need something, whether it was vegetarian or a place, you know, that was strongly feminist. There were women who needed that then. And where else would you find it? You know, here we are. Prior to establishing the restaurant, what was going on in your lives? Well, I designed gardens. I was a landscape designer. I had saved up the money I made from that. It was very little, about 19000 And uh, my parents thought I was ridiculous, but they did help. <laughs> You know? We were both married and both have two children grown now. Oh, wow. They say we have grown-ups. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, so it was quite a shift in our lives. I did some photography then. used to do families and children and the like. And, uh, weddings. So, and weddings, <laughs> yeah. occasionally. Uh, but uh, And so that skill, let's say, is useful here since there's a lot of need for photography these days. I mean, everything's a photograph. Yeah. And, and she's become a fabulous photographer. <laughs> really fabulous. Her pictures are so gorgeous. We can show you in the mermaid room pictures she takes of the moon over the water. At oh, night. that'd be amazing. Yeah. 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 It really, it's, it's neat. I'm really glad to have a spot to put what I can do and be productive that way, yeah. you know, because there's nine million billion photographs in the yeah. universe. And they're floating around on people's phones, and nobody's ever going to see them. And when the phone's over, the photos are over, or whatever, you know. It seems terrible that they all end up, you know, in gizmos and devices and not in albums where, you, you know, can you can see you, them. You, I, I make, have prints made of the color things now and put them in little albums because something tangible and, you know, somebody doesn't have to look at my little pictures here, you know. Uh, so I find that distressing, let's say. And, and it is the way of the world, I know. Everybody's doing it. And, uh, but I think it's important to try to remember that and try to keep that going. So the pictures are in our cookbooks yeah. and in um, our calendars every year. I have that same fear about like the digitization of music because oh, there's sure. a lot of bands that yeah. yep. will put out a demo or something that's not major label and if some strange future has like our electric grid wiped out and everything's right. gone, like, that's right. where that's is that right. going to exist? Yeah, I yeah. know. That's kind of a, I mean, I, <laughs> I wonder about that, the electric grid gone and how humans would manage. It's not that I uh, think it's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But seems unlikely in our lifetime. When you started the restaurant, did you have any experience in the world of food or in restaurant touring, I guess is the word? <laughs> I cooked. Selma was always a great cook, and she oh. always loved cooking, and she brought that skill, and she taught all of us. She kind of dragged us up into being able to cook for the restaurant. <laughs> it was very intense in the beginning, yeah. her energy and how much she did and how actually she made this happen, really. <laughs> you know, the thing Force that I will. think <laughs> that is parallel, you've gone to all these places all over the world, okay? And I wanted to know the people all over the world by what they eat. That's what I wanted, okay? So it just seemed to me, and that's long before Bloodroot, I used to belong to the Society for Ethical Culture, and every year they had a tasting menu, an international tasting menu, and I ran it for a couple of years. 
And it was just, and, and at that time, we had very little that was Asian, you know, but there was, you know, German and Swiss and, you know, English and, but it just always was fascinating to me that the different things that people ate, and I want to know them for their food. And the culture seems to me far more important than the politics or the religion. So, mm -hmm. you know, so I just wanted to know those things, and I still want to know those things. So, you know, that's what's fun. Right. And one of the nice things about that is that when people come in, let's say, from China or from Puerto Rico or whatever, and we have something from their culture mm. on the menu, it makes an instant connection with people. Mm. And, that, and that is a real delight to us. The thing that I hate is the <laughs> vegetarian restaurants that decide to make the crap food that Americans eat, but make it vegan. And I can't believe it because it's like so hot disgusting <laughs> in the first place. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know. Who, if 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 you taught a lot of folks here how to cook, who taught you to cook? Well, okay, Erica, who just left, who worked for us for a while, is Mexican, and she came in and said, "You can't cook beans in a metal pot. You've got to cook it in a clay pot." And I was like. Why? What? You know, what are you talking about? I mean, who taught me to cook? It's like whenever someone that I meet, you know, and they say, oh, well, I make such and such. I, I want to know about it. Um, there's a uh, uh, Rose Latour. Oh, Haitian? Haitian woman mm -hmm. who worked for us for a while. And, and she was not a cook, okay. But she came in one night and, uh, and she had this you know, thing that was her supper that her mother had made for her. And she said, tell me you won't like it because it was very spicy. And I tasted it. I was, whoo, but it was wonderful. So I kept nagging at her and she didn't know how to make it. But she finally brought her mama with all the ingredients, okay, with very particular Haitian cornmeal that you could make this thing, mice moulin avec pois, you know, which is, uh, you know, ground up cornmeal with, uh, with peas, like beans. Like a polenta. Ah. Yeah. yeah, it's a kind of polenta, but mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. And it was so good, you know. So it's like if you hunger for it, you will find it, okay? And so when people come in and they have something like that, I'm just thrilled, you know, and we make it every year in January because that's when her mama taught me how to do it. And, uh, you know, what can I tell you? It's, it's like I very much believe in sharing recipes because right now the big excitement is cheese, making vegan cheese. And, um, and it, it's a, there was a thing in the Times like last week about, about, let's say, six or eight people across the country who are making vegan cheese. And I mean, you know, true cheese, not faux cheese. Yeah. And that is really exciting. And so, of course, I want to know whatever it is that they're doing. And I certainly want to share whatever it is I'm doing because that way we grow it. You know, I mean, you know, there, all these things are done with cultures and you save a little bit, you know, like sourdough, and you put it in the next thing. And then you save a little bit. That's what we should be doing. We, we need to lean, learn from each other how to cook these things, how to cook cheese, okay, or make cheese, and just all of it, all of our culture. Uh, Layla is uh, Muslim, and so she is now celebrating Ramadan, and so she doesn't eat all day. And she comes in every night with a, with a uh, date, because this is what you're supposed to do as you break your fast, and you're supposed to share these dates. Well, I didn't know that, you know? I mean, there's so much we can learn from each other. We don't have to become Muslim to learn that, but it's a richness to people's lives and 
that's what we all need is the richness of each other, right? Yeah, and, <laughs> and I think a lesson you can take globally too is that historically and also just worldwide, people have had to make do with very little. Yes, I, right. I know you don't serve meat, but like in many places, meat is a once a week type of a thing. Right. Exactly. Because of either price or scarcity, mm-hmm. um, right. so you have what you have, and you have to become very good at making that taste mm-hmm. good. <laughs> That's always been my theory that uh, the people who are cooking with very little finance have got to be far more clever than the people who throw the mm. steak on the grill. Okay, because they have to learn how to do it, how to make it at least as good, if not better. Yeah. The complexity of it is in their minds, and that is very precious, okay? Mm. When- it's also way healthier. <laughs> oh, sorry, it's also way healthier. Um, I read a, a book about a year ago called The Blue Zone Solution. Yes. Oh, yes. Sure. Have you yeah. read this? Yeah, uh, yeah and, and for people who haven't, though, it, it talks specifically about places in the world that have the largest population of people who live to over a hundred. Right, yeah. And one of the commonalities between these places is um, really the the limitation on meat yes. is, is a huge one. And then also the way in which food is made, mm-hmm. right? Um, food is made from, rather than going to the grocery store and buying most of it already pre-made or processed, yeah. you know, you're growing it, you're making it with family, you're eating it with family rather than in front of a television. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so there's, yeah, I yeah, think the there's... the emotional part of it, yeah. And, and none of it necessarily comes from a place of, of financial wealth, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it just comes from the community aspect right. of your food. You know, the first book he wrote, he didn't want to make it that it was a lack of meat, okay? He, he was like, no, no, it just, you know, it's a whole combination of things. You know, it's a community, it's whatever. Uh, but later on, he got more and more to realizing that the lack of, of dairy and meat is definitely a health issue. I mean, there's no mm-hmm. question about that. And when people say that they're vegan or becoming vegan, I always say three things. It's good for you, it's good for the animals, good for the earth. So it's a very good thing to be doing. Can you tell me about the feminist movement in the 70s that was taking place when you started the restaurant and what your particular involvement in it was? <laughs> well, we were successive um, Presidents of local now chapters. Right. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. That's where we started. Yeah. And there were uh, consciousness raising groups at that time in which women got around, got together, and spoke of a particular subject, and then gathered to see what the commonalities were. And was astonishing. It was really very uh, mind blowing period of time for a lot of women who changed their lives as a result of learning that a lot of the their disaffection and uh, displeasure in life had, was political as opposed to personal and that became uh, sort of a for me anyway a moving a moving thing it moved me out of being just a wife and mother and into thinking about having some other sort of life. And I think a lot of women did that. They changed their lives at that time. And a lot of times the consciousness raising groups were uh, instrumental in that uh, decision. So, have, have those groups sort of persisted to, until the present time? Or? No. No. It was a time. It was a time in history. The way the women's movement of the 70s and the early 80s was very different then. Mm. And that was part of it then. But things have changed a lot. You know, 
You've all heard about Philip Roth, who was this kind of famous writer, and he just died. And I remember being in college in the 50s. I graduated Tufts in 1956. And I remember, and I don't know if it was Philip Roth or one of the others, but he used to say, oh, you know, if you sleep with a woman who isn't a virgin, it's like sleeping in someone's dirty bathwater. Wow. <laughs> okay, and I was so angry, okay. So, you know, some of us were angry. This is way before feminism. And I kept thinking, if I have a son, I'm going to teach him different. You know, I was like that about it. But, you know, this has been going on a long time. And it still is. I mean, it still is. Yeah. You know, the whole Me Too thing, I mean, maybe overblown, but, you know, the, this stuff is what happened and happens, still happens. And I, I, yeah, I can't believe that the woman who uh, recently and who, you know, worked for Google and decided she had to quit because, you know, the guys were hitting on her and she complained. So that was it. She was no longer, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't put her up a notch because she had complained. I mean, well, what do you expect? This is what these guys do, you know? And, and unless you have that as an understanding, you're not going to get anywhere, you know? And it's the sort of thing like, this is all belated, if you will, but, you know, to realize that all these traffic stops, some guy's going to get killed if he's black, mm. you know? So stop with the traffic stops. I mean, it's so obvious, you know, to, to stop somebody and kill him because this thing is the wrong date. It's amazing. I can't believe it. And the police unions have gotten away with this. And how could they? And we still accept that, that, you know, that there has to be justification for that. I mean, I don't think we really accept it anymore, but there it is. And, and it was an accepted thing that if you worked with men, you could expect the guy to, you know, hey, cutie, you look so good. Come on, spend a little time. You, know, you had to expect it. And because of the difference in power, you, you would try to go along with them because, I mean, like Anita Hill. She needed Clarence Thomas to recommend her. So she had it, listen to him say all this shit and, you know, and live with it. And he's on the Supreme Court forever. And I, I blame Biden for that because he wouldn't, you know, listen to other people. I mean. To other women. Yeah, other yeah. women. And, of course, I, mm -hmm. I'm not unhappy with what he's doing now. But, you know, it, this is all of a piece. We, I was political when I was a teenager, you know, in that sense, you know. And, and, you know, mostly as women, we had to make believe it wasn't happening. Because what could you do? You know, this is the world. I have an, another book reference. Um, maybe you've also read this. Uh, it came out recently. Uh, it's called Invisible Women. Um, it's about, you, you, maybe know. you've heard it, but maybe. Invisible Women. And it's about data bias in a world designed for men. I think this is the subtitle of it. And um, what you're speaking about here, I think, really comes to the lack of data uh, to, in order to make informed policy decisions, right? Yeah. And so specifically to what you're talking about when um, it comes to sexual <laughs> harassment in the workplace, right? Uh, oftentimes it goes unreported. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the difference is that women and men are lumped together in a lot of data, and therefore when policy is being made, it's therefore this is like the norm is the masculine dominant, right? right. Um, and I think that also until recently, um, has happened with people who are not represented in data, particularly people of color, right? right yeah. And so now that we're starting to be smarter about data collection, we're able to make more informed decisions about policy and actually see, oh, there is a huge issue here. Like even in that book, they were talking about car companies. 
the the dummy that's used for that's required to use for car tests, right, um, is a male body, and it's made to the male proportion, as if women haven't had driver's licenses, right? So it's it's like, how are we then going to calculate correctly for the proportion of a woman-sized body, and right. then? Miraculously, women make up 17%. There's something more car accidents, right? So it's like the more that we're able to collect the data in these right. spheres and, and in, in any of these environments, we're able to then make smarter policy decisions off of it. Sure. But it has to, like you said, similar to like referencing someone like Biden, it has to come from your ally in power yeah. uh, to then account for that data. Yeah, right. Yep. When you, when you started Bloodroot yes. was... Is this space then a space that was uh, seemingly or, or in actuality a safe space for people to go in the sense that like, you know, I, I've read about in like the 70s and 80s, like collectives and by varying names of, of you know, queer collectives or mm -hmm. feminist movements, like police breaking down doors and clubbing people. <laughs> um, so yeah. like, That's was there word of mouth, like this is a place where you can go and there are allies and it's a safe space to be? Well, uh, I think so. We had Wednesday night for women, just for women, okay? For a long time until that didn't seem to be necessary any, anymore and that the women didn't come, you know? <laughs> So, okay, so in that sense, it, it was a lesbian space, okay? Mm. Um, and it wasn't really legal, so we had to do things like ask people to make reservations when, you know, we did, didn't the rest of the week. But that's what we did, and that's what we had. I think um, it, it has always been, okay, uh, I'm a Jew and a woman, and whenever I would go to a restaurant, you know, and so, there would be a hostess or a host at the door, and they'd look over my head because I wasn't, with mm. a man, you know. So I know something about what it is to be scorned that, that way, and, and I just hated it. So, I mean, I think we really, really feel that when people come here, we are really glad you have come. And we are glad, I've told you, diversity is the most important thing to me, always has been from pre-Bloodroot, whether it's the food or the people or the belief systems. There was a felon here last night with the most gorgeous shirt. And it was from uh, Norway, and it was all decorated, and there was a god on the back. And I said, what's the god's name? And he said, Tyre or something. He wasn't sure. Well, it was Thor, and I used to read, you know, um, you know mythology. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I knew who Thor was, you know. It was just <laughs> a gorgeous shirt. But you see, that's something that I get excited about because here's something that is unique that he got, that he loved, and we could talk about it. I, I weave and I made, you know. And so it's diversity is more interesting to me than anything else. The diversity of food, diversity of belief systems, um, you know, the flowers, <laughs> all of that is what matters the most to appreciate each other that way. And so, of course, we it's not about a safe space. It was just that whatever it was, you know, we might not agree with you, okay? But, you know, we want it to be that whoever wants to come here feels welcome. It's important yes. to feel welcome. Mm -hmm. And there have been times that people have come here and they have had a chip on the shoulder and they haven't felt welcome, but not for my lack of trying, okay? I think that's really important, yes. especially as like white identifying women in the yes. feminist movement. 
because there has been a lot of literature written around how white women dominated the feminist movement mm -hmm. and almost did not allow space for other intersections okay, right, I, of people. I, I got to answer that because Do it. I, I, it, that makes me so angry when I hear that because where we were yes. and what we were doing at the time was very much inclusive and... Uh, you know, I sort of give credit to what early feminists and lesbians were doing in terms of getting together to uh, sort of like the beginning of some acknowledgement of the differences in the diversity. Yes. And we were always conscious of it. And we have, you know, uh, what Barbara, the two sisters, the books. Yes. We have a... Huh? No, no, oh, no, no, no. There were twins. <laughs> Twin black women yeah. who wrote a bunch of books. Uh, and there was this press called Kitchen Table Press right. that had stories of women. And there was also a uh, an anthology of Chicana women's work. And, their, yes. and we've know, always their carried these. And yes. we've always carried them. And we've had these women here talking. And we've listened to them. So... So you can see it get a little hot under the collar about it. Okay. No, no, but it's, yeah. um, you know, something that uh, I've, like, been really conscious to try mm -hmm. to learn more about, right, sure. to make sure that I'm using my privilege in a way that's not overshadowing someone else. Sure, and, sure. Um, it's a little different now, too. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, things are changed, and, it, and there is a kind of wider look at these things. That we, uh, of course, you know. but I read um, this bridge called My Back. Yes, you, yes, you, sure. I, I had a feeling you <laughs> read it. wrote that book came here mm -hmm. uh, and read from it. I yes. wish I could have yeah. been yes. here for that, but yes. reading that book, it just... Uh, yeah, reading the, the stories and the, right, the poems yeah. by those women yes. is just really something that made me have to think a little bit more about how sure. I might, as a white woman, mm -hmm. you know, be overstepping right. in, in certain areas and then making sure that I am also a partner in a feminist movement rather right. than right. A, yes. a, an unnecessary leader in some spaces. You know, at that time, okay, uh, let's see where to begin with it. Um, you know, in, in the 70s and 80s, the radical feminists, there weren't many of us, okay? So they all came here. So mm. Adrian Rich came here. Uh, the women of um, Kitchen Table Kitchen Press, Table Press yeah. came here. And amongst them was Michelle Quip, who was Adrian's lover, okay? Who had written her own book, okay? And she had come here. And, um, and as happened since, Noel took Michelle's picture while she was here. So, you know, Adrian died relatively recently, and there's a woman who wrote a biography of her. And she wanted very much to have a picture of Michelle in the book, because Michelle was her, ended up being Adrian's, you know, lifetime lover. And they couldn't find a picture. And one of Adrian's sons found a picture. What and happened is, he was going through her things. Uh, yeah, he was going through Michelle's things and an envelope dropped out, and out of the envelope came a print of this particular picture. And she didn't like photographs of herself. There weren't any, and they were kind of desperate. And he found that picture, and that's what they used for in the her, New York Times. In the Times. And I saw it. I said, oh, wait a minute, I took that picture. They didn't know who took it. So, um, wow. yeah, so I called up the Times, and I said, hey, I took that picture. Did they credit you? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, they credited me online. It was too late for the okay. paper, but they yeah. did credit online. And, and I got $200 for it. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's cool. So that was good. But, um, yeah, that was a really exciting thing. And then I guess that, uh, what's her name? Holloway. Yeah. 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 Um, I forget her first name, the author yeah. of the book about Adrian. Her second name is Holloway. Yeah. Um, she saw the picture and, through the Times, contacted us for... Yeah. 
for permission to use yeah. it in the book. So it's in that book up there. So I'm very proud about that. But you know, in that time, okay, uh, this is just all interesting right. stuff that yes. people don't know about. Uh, but certainly, <coughs> the lesbians hung together, okay? Yeah. And so Adrian and Michelle, who of course is Jamaican, was, and um, and there were a whole bunch of other people, Audrey Lord, if you know, yeah. she, you know and Audrey came here a lot, Whoa. okay? So they would have like parties in New York, um, and um, and let's see, what was her name? Claire, Claire, Claire Cuss, Cuss and, um, uh, and Blanche Cook, Cook. Yeah. you know, and Claire Cuss, no, Blanche was a um, biographer of Eisenhower and, uh, you know, Eleanor oh, Roosevelt, Roosevelt, yeah. Mm -hmm. And they were all friends together, okay? And they were friends with Audrey, and Audrey, whenever one of them had a new book, they'd have a party, okay? Mm -hmm. And right. all the literati of the lesbian community would go to that party in New York. And Audrey wanted us to be at that party. So we would go and they'd say, well, what have you written? <laughs> a cookbook, you know? <laughs> we're cooks. But I mean, it, it was a very mixed community. And we were all radical feminists. And, you know, and of course, uh, Adrienne at one point gave money to Audrey because she was so ill to go to a a, you know, a guy in, in Switzerland that might help. And Audrey came here and used our homeopathic doctor who's Indian, you know? So, I mean, it was, and Audrey was always hollering at me, you should be reading these African books. <laughs> and I, okay, okay, and I did. So it's not that I don't feel guilty also because sometimes I didn't pay attention, yeah. but I tried, you know, and, but I think, I think the radical women, the, the women who wanted to be like, um, oh God, what's her name? Betty Friedan. Betty Friedan, <laughs> who wanted to be, you know, the chief executive of a great big company. That's not us, and mm -hmm. it never was us. Mm -hmm. Okay, what I wanted to do was the diversity. I wanted to know about other people. I like it when people are politically conscious. I like it when their politics are like mine. Yeah. But you know, that isn't always the case. Yeah. Okay, so. It's okay, I know people wrote those things. I can't think of her name, but there was this kind of famous woman, Cheryl somebody or other, who became a big deal. And there she was at Harvard, and when the cleaning women came to complain about how they were being treated, she didn't want to talk to them. But that's not us. That's not where we were coming from. We were radical feminists, and that's different. Okay, so. Did you ever face any particular resistance in the sense that you're talking about radical feminism, that sounds very dangerous to some people <laughs> who want to maintain the status quo. Yeah. Um, did you ever, we, ever we face that? pay attention to it. I mean, we came here and really this is, uh, we had our own space and we have our own agency. We make all the, the decisions here ourselves, you know, and so, no, I, I didn't feel that way. Anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, that wasn't important. The thing, no. the thing is that what do you do as a feminist? And, and Annie and I were talking about this last week. Um, and what is it that's feminist? It's not feminist to be a lesbian. I mean, it could be, but it isn't. Not necessarily. It's a choice, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, and it's the way you live your life. So what aspect of this is feminist? So we had to think about it. Now, there isn't any rule book, you know, like there is to be a good um, Buddhist or to be, a, you know, a good like Christian. <laughs> right. You know, this is what you do. There wasn't any rule book, so we didn't know what to do. But, you know, I, I told you I was worried about having waitresses. There wouldn't be enough business for them to make any money. So we made it self-serve. I mean, this is long before anybody was self-serve. Then, you know, there's this issue. You're supposed to have a chef in the kitchen, right? 
and I wasn't gonna have a chef in the kitchen. I'm a cook, and I'm not a chef. I never went to cooking school or chef school. And we have a lot of women, some of whom are really good cooks and some are not. And, but they're cooks, we're all cooks, we're not chefs. And some people are better at doing other things, you know, than doing any kind of cooking, right? Mm. So that's certainly a feminist position for us. And when I went to this um, Vietnamese restaurant the other night, that's owned by the two women, and I'm trying to explain about Noel, because I wanted to bring food home to her from this wonderful place. And well, she at the front of the house or the back of the house? I don't know what's the front or the back, because we roamed through both, you yes. know, okay? In the middle, we're in the middle. Yeah. I like that you mentioned Vietnam. I mean, like, if, if you go to Vietnam, food culture and restaurants, they are dominated by women, and particularly, older women and there yeah. there are pots of broth that will cook for 12 hours and you're up at 5 a.m. and yeah no one can say that they are like a, a CIA educated chef right, right but it is stuff that would be Michelin star worthy right like it would blow your mind right. to have and yeah. it's real real good yeah. so that's interesting yeah in, in looking around um, there are things from all over the world uh, which is really fascinating yeah mm -hmm. Have you <laughs> accumulated those, or is that from like the extensive list of, of guests from all over the world? No, these are our accumulations. Wow. We did go to uh, India, and a lot of these hangings are from there, and uh, where we went to Istanbul. We've been around in different places, yeah. and then Mexico. Not a lot, not a lot but some. most of them are not as here. much as you. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that all sounds amazing. It, it, it but, was. But this little rug right here. No, that's Patty Acevedo's, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But you have a, a rug. That over one there. I made, yeah. Yeah. That little rug. And there's one. Uh, way in the hall mm -hmm. of Noel's shadow on the ground that she made. Mm -hmm. okay. and, and all right, so, and the yeah. mermaids are, uh, I made. Yeah, you know, the, the, quilt. the mermaid okay. quilt up there, yeah. which she designed and put together. It's yeah. brilliant. I'm breaking the fourth wall here because there's a documentary taking place while we're recording. Yeah. Um, but you know, this is this is a small podcast in the in the world of media. Uh, those stories from your travels around the world and yeah. this all sounds like memoir worthy. Like this would be a really yeah. fascinating read. Uh, <laughs> is that in the books or, or it, will this will this be on the documentary? Yeah. Well, uh, well, we don't know. It's up yeah. to Annie. Oh, okay. What she, what she thinks is important. So you, okay. Now I'm going to tell you a little story that is controversial. This is very current. Uh, we have a wonderful woman who's designed our cookbooks for us and, uh, you know, website and all that. And she is not a, a very good friend. She's from Florida, but, <laughs> you know, I'm going to talk about Maya and uh, peppercorns. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, okay. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is controversial. Okay. So anyway, she brought us two copies of a book written, um, it was a, a ghostwriter, but anyway, about these two women, one of whom is Vietnamese and one of them is American. And it's a wonderful book. And whoever wrote it did a very good job because you got a, a whole sense of uh, the thing that's most interesting to me is that they don't really get along and they've been together a very long time, mm. not as lovers, okay? Uh, and the Vietnamese woman was a refugee and she was taken in, the Lutheran church said to this American woman, can she live with you? Yes. And this Vietnamese woman, was amazing, okay. Back in Vietnam, she's noticing, before she came here, that uh, people who had brick houses were respected more than their little straw house. So she figured she was gonna make some bricks. She was eight years old. Well, 
So she watched the men and she made bricks. And when she finally got enough bricks, the men in her family managed to put up a little one-room house. And they were treated with more respect. Then the family didn't have money, so she decided to make soup. And she made soup and she took it to the market and she sold it, okay? And she kept thinking the soup wasn't that good, so she went back and got more bones, meat bones to put in it. And then it was good enough, okay? So she arrives in America and of course the first thing she wants to do is, oh, and she's pregnant. Okay, at one of the camps, she got pregnant. Everybody said, you gotta get an abortion. No, she wanted the kid. So Kathy, the American woman said, okay, you're gonna have the kid. And so she had the kid. And Kathy was very involved with the upbringing of this child, okay? I mean, it's a really neat book for its differentness in so Mm -hmm. many ways. Well, you know, um, (laughs) this first throughout this book are recipes and they're all meat, 100% of them. Okay, I don't mind that. I mind that the writer keeps saying how much better this food is than anything anybody had. And therefore, this restaurant was extremely successful, okay? Because it was superior. And it was superior because of the meat. And that got me upset. It's the superiority thing that got me upset, okay? Anyway, but just to tell you a little bit about the, the, the punchline to all this, because it's so cute, is that the kid grew up to be a very intelligent, and it was Kathy who just, anything she wanted, she did for her. She was nuts about the kid. And the kid, and they're saying, well, she could go to college, but don't apply to any of the fancy schools. So of course, she, they applied to Harvard. And she got in with a full scholarship, okay? and went to Harvard. So when she was graduating, and Kathy and Tong went to see her, this is Boston, oh my God, all those bricks. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that cute? (laughs) So it's a really neat book, but I am upset with the presumption Mm -hmm. that there's a superiority in meat, that there's a superiority in white, that there's a superiority in men. That's what upsets me, okay? And it, it's not because of the health issues, it's that it, it, it's, it's a bigotry. And, and it's a bigotry that is painful. In many ways, it's painful for all of us. It's painful for our health. It's painful for the earth. And in this day and age, they shouldn't be saying that this is the better food to eat. They shouldn't be saying that, it's wrong. Any more than you could say that blacks are inherently stupid or that women couldn't possibly you know, speak as well as men. I have no uh, large solutions for, like, issues of supremacy, right? I mean, (laughs) if I did, I'd probably be very wealthy and there'd be a lot of peace (laughs) in the world. But I I think a very simple solution is is to travel a lot. I mean, to experience the culture and the lives of of other people is really, really eye-opening. But, you know, so many times when people are traveling, especially from this country, they aren't (laughs) experiencing the country as it really is. Right, right. They're tourists and they go to the hotels and, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you you know, you have to have the will and that's the problem. You have to have the will to find it and to appreciate it. And, like, lately I've been really interested in sort of, like... uh, Learning about the lives of a lot of, of like red state folks, you know, a lot of Rust Belt what? folks, Appalachia, oh. uh, folks who would seemingly be like politically and socially very different <laughs> from myself and would maybe have like very different deeply held beliefs, mm-hmm. but seeing a lot of commonality in yes. their lives anyway, uh, be it work or class or, mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. 
um, I think is also important sort of for like the, the other side of that um, mindset. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'll wrap you soon. I know I've been, I've been keeping you here, but in, in New York City, to hear of a place, a restaurant that's been around since the 70s or, or before, uh, there aren't many left. We have very high rents. There are like steakhouses, maybe some of the, like the Italian places where it's like, oh, it's been here since the 50s. And that's like, whoa. Yeah. Um, what what has been sort of like, a, a, I know it's different where we're in Bridgeport, but yeah. what has been a, what do you think has been a, a key to your longevity here? Mm. Couple of things and surviving, obviously the, the <laughs> well, pandemic. Well, we own the property. That's you know mm. we don't have to pay the extreme rents that people have mm. to pay, and that's that's big. Also, um, we're really determined that you know this is our life, so we're going to keep it going at all costs, really. Mm. And we don't make any money. We really don't. Mm. You know, we're really glad to. Um, be paying the women as as well as we can, but um, the business, the restaurant business itself, it hasn't really been uh, a big money maker. Let's say, mm. and it, I, I'm fine with that. I really am absolutely fine with that because we've had such an incredible life here and always able to uh, make it as we wish. Uh, I don't know if Soma feels exactly <laughs> the same way. She, it, it's a little different, but mm -hmm. you know, the thing is. What would I do? Mm. I love this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what would I do if I didn't have this? I mean, I'm I'm 86, so I, you know the body is a little uh, not wonderful, and and I feel like oh I should just go to bed the whole day. But, you know what? What wouldn't that be awful? And if I have to get up, I have to get up, and I have to. Well, I could at least look for a new recipe. <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah. But um, really, I mean, I wish we we made more money, you know, but. You know, we try. But the thing that I really love to do is cook, and I really like to meet different people. Mm. And the people who come in here, and they're self-selected, of course. They're really terrific. There isn't a single meal where somebody doesn't come in who's really interesting. They do something, or they think something, or they've read something. Mm. And, and that's just so amazing and wonderful, okay? And when, you know, at the height of the pandemic, when people were not coming in and they were just doing takeout, you know, and I was talking to Shanti mm -hmm. and she misses people. You know, sure. I, I want to oh. eat with people. Yeah. I want to talk to them. And I wouldn't have that. And it would be just terrible. And I really, really worry about the people, often women, who are frightened and won't come out of their houses. Mm. I worry about them. I think, I don't know. I, I just think it's so sad that they're so frightened. And, you know, well, okay. There was this guy, and he said, you know, if you're scared of dying, you're going to do it, so, you know, get over it. You know what I mean? He didn't say it like that. But it's going to happen. It's coming, yeah. <laughs> there's no, no preventing it. You know, there's no preventing it. Two things in your life, you're born, you're going to die, okay? So, have I had enough time at 86? I think so. I think I've had, you know, I mean, why do you think that you're entitled to more? You know, I think if somebody dies before they're 80, that's kind of sad, you know, because... Well, be let's say before they're 70. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, yes, I think it's, it's sad when somebody young dies, yeah. okay? Yeah. And sometimes it's someone who's been vegan all their lives and never smoked and never drank, it, and they get a weird disease and they die. And I think that's really sad. But for the most part, you know, I've had a life. Mm -hmm. So what am I scared of? There is no reason to be scared because I'm going to die anyway. And it's not that I want to, you know, I don't want to. But, you know... It's going to happen. And if I live the days that I have as if I'm scared, 
I'm wasting my life, well, yeah. really wasting my life. Mm -hmm. And the same fellow who I, I like what he said, you know, accept the fact you're gonna die, okay? Mm -hmm. It's gonna happen. <clears throat> he talked about the Marines that <clears throat> when someone is hit, they have to go and get them, even if they might die. Mm -hmm. And I really believe that. I think it's really bad to be alone. <clears throat> Nobody should be alone. And the person who dies is gone, but the person who isn't there for the dying has to live with that guilt and the feeling that they too will die alone. That is not good. That is not human, okay? Mm -hmm. And the other thing that he said is, you know, when you get up every morning, never mind love, find something beautiful, okay? That's all, that's all you have to do. And I think it's true. Mm -hmm. I really loved it that he mm -hmm. said that mm -hmm. because, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like that. Well, yeah, that's right. So that's all. I'm going to die. So it's going to be, hopefully, I'm going to die standing up cooking or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> it will you surely know? be there. <laughs> but it's so much fun. It's so much, it's magic, you know. It's being a, a uh, agent of transformation. That's the way I think about mm. cooking. You know, or putting a seed in the ground, being an agent of transformation. Okay. And to be able to do that and to turn carrots into locks or, you know, whatever else we do, that's just so exciting and so much fun. And for to share it with somebody else, that's it. <laughs> that's a, a good segue into, into how I'll, I'll close this. Um, and I want to hear from you too, Liz, and I hope I don't take yours. But, you know, food... Uh, if you reduce it, I guess, to, to what it actually is, is you're, you're keeping someone alive. You're giving them sustenance. Yes, yes, yes. But food also can be educational. Like, uh, I was a big Anthony Bourdain fanboy, and <laughs> he showed us like, how intimately it's tied to politics, um, the, the history of a place, the social issues of a place. Uh, but also it is intimately tied to memories and emotions and yes. feelings. Yes. So what I want to pose to everybody, I, I know you've had likely hundreds of thousands of amazing food experiences here um, or, you know, even just traveling around. So I want to ask uh, what comes to mind when I, if I ask you what is a particularly memorable meal you've had uh, that you think of. And I'll start so that everybody can maybe let their brain work a little bit. Um, but in 2019, we went to Morocco, I think. Last year was 2020, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we were in a, a place called Chef Shawan. It's the Blue City. And it, like a lot of Medinas, is a maze. And, and there's no signs. And you just kind of like... I think I've already rounded that corner. I don't really know where I am. Where are we going? I'm kind of hot, kind of tired. And we meet this guy. And there's a lot of people who are trying to get you to buy something or pitch you something. And he's like, hey, hey, come on over. And at first, I think my initial reaction, like as a very New York thing, is to be like, no, no, like, no, we're good, we're good. He's like, no, no, come, come to my rug shop. Come to my rug shop. Mm -hmm. And it's Friday. And on Fridays in Morocco, you have your Friday couscous meal. And it's communal. And we go into this rug place with no intention to buy anything. And he's like, sit down with me and my family and have couscous. You don't have to buy anything. Yeah. Of course we did then. But, <laughs> but we sit down and we all share this massive plate of couscous. There's a woman from Australia. There's a woman from the States. I think like it was Louisiana maybe, um, who now I think lives in Brooklyn. But we're just there with these strangers. And all of a sudden we're all like friends and we know each other. Sure. 
Um, and that felt really magical and, and really special to me. Yes. Um, I'm glad you're back, Noel, because I'm going to pose this one to you too. Okay. Um, I was just sharing when I think of like a memorable meal, mm -hmm. uh, that experience. Ooh. So uh, I'm going to pose that to all of you too. I'm sure there are many, but what is one that comes to mind for you? Mm -hmm. Me first? Okay. Um, this is hard. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's a good question. One that stands out to me um, was, I don't remember when this was, maybe 2015, 2016, something like that. Um, I was in Bolivia, and I originally started traveling with just one friend. And along the way, we picked up some other travelers who joined us, and we decided we were going to um, sort of like work our way through like a Che Guevara like trail, <laughs> make our makeshift own like historical trail. And uh, we got to Iguera, which is like the mountaintop uh, town where uh, Che was killed. And it's a really small town where not many people live, maybe 40, 50 people or so, and it's truly just there to take a picture or leave. We ended up like hitchhiking up to this place. We got stuck for about five days. And um, during that time though, the same family that ran the convenience store, ran the only restaurant, who also ran the school and was also the doctor. <laughs> and so we just really befriended this family. And I remember our last night uh, staying there, I mean, not knowing it was our last night because we were dependent on other people to take us back. Uh, we had this meal with uh, just their kids and their family and um, all these people I met within like the past month and we're sitting, um, I don't know, on like s kind of like a stone table. I guess, yeah, it was something like a stone table. We have like candlelight because there isn't much electricity going on. Uh, and you know, nothing was about, well, what outfit am I wearing to this dinner? None, none of that really mattered. It was just more of being around people and having good food and as a really memorable place to be. Yeah, that's good. Did you do yours over now? Go ahead. <laughs> okay, it's hard. This is a tough one. I can't. Oh well, I I know. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so I was really never interested in going to Europe. Okay, but we did go to um, uh, Turkey. Okay, which was wonderful. But I really have been negative about Europe. However, we'd gone to a wine tasting in New York, and it was just. Tuscany, little, like maybe, usually wine tastings have like 50 or oh. 100, yeah, uh, vintners there. And this was like six, and it was all Tuscany. And I liked it so much. I mean, you know, there were these the vintners, and they sort of bowed a little, and they were so gracious, and they were not the sort of Italian I thought of, you know? Anyway, and I thought, okay, for my 80th birthday, I want to go to, to, to Tuscany. Not actually to Tuscany, to... Umbria. Um, Umbria, yeah, which is next to it, okay. And we went, and we go on vacation in February. So guess what, we're closing, you know, after Valentine's Day, and so is the rest of the world. And so all the places I looked up in the Michelin Guide, they're all closed, all the ones that were supposed to be the best restaurants. And I kept desperately looking for something that was good, you know, and finally I found one. Of course, they only spoke Italian, we only spoke English, <laughs> But I did have a lawyer friend who was Italian, 
and he talked to them. And, and uh, yes, they would feed us. Um, and I said it had to be vegetarian. Oh, okay, well, all right, all right. And, but would I, was I sure that I was going to do this, you know, come and do it? Anyway, and I said, sure, because, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> I didn't have a lot of choice. We ate in other places, but we planned to do this. And we were going to go, like, on Saturday night. And then we got scared of the roads, and so we made it Saturday lunch. And all through Umbria, it is not the place that most tourists go. We would walk into restaurants, and there'd be nobody there but us. And we were treated so graciously every place. And the food was good wherever we went. It was interesting how they were used to this. No, nobody's here. You know, what are you going to do? Me and my brother. My brother's the cook. I'm the waiter, you know, like that. And it was always good. But we were very anxious about this place we were supposed to go to at the end of the week. And one of our friends who was with us was exceedingly, it's $95 a person. This is a lot of money. And what if it's no good? I promised them. I can't help, you know. Anyway. And then we couldn't find it. There was like... It wasn't on a road. It didn't have a sign, you know. <laughs> anyway, we finally got in there. You had to ring the button on the gate, you know, and we got in. And there was this white carpet, you know. <laughs> and I mean, we have a, a book with lots of pictures. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> and we were the only people there, of mm. course, you know. And they had, what's the name of that glass? The, the beautiful little oh, glass statues know. all kinds of yeah all kinds of very fancy dishes and things Classic, yeah. and every course came with homemade breads that were different from the previous course it was very elaborate and fancy and incredibly wonderful and every course came with a different wine you know it's the fanciest meal i've ever had you know for the 95 dollars you know it was a, Which amazing is cheap now do you think yeah. Yeah. well yeah. even then it was cheap because they just really went to town because i mean there we were and it, it was a challenge for them to do an all-vegetarian meal, okay? And it was exquisite. And, of course, we visited with them, and the owner came over to, to greet us, and the waiter, who was the only guy in the place that spoke English. And I don't know, it was an amazing experience. And, and we each got handwritten menus in Italian, of course, mm -hmm. that said everything that was on the menu, but it left out the fancy wines and all the wonderful, you know, patisserie, yeah. and it, it, was, it was an amazing meal, you know, and I'm not going to say that anything was my favorite. It, I was just blown away by the quality of it, and that they did this just for us, and afterwards, we went to sit in a kind of lounge that overlooked a lake, and the waiter came, and, he, and we were full. You've got to come and see this. And he took me into the kitchen to show me the copper pots and just everything that was out of this world, yeah. you know, just for us, all by ourselves. It's amazing. Yeah, it know? is amazing. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> and, and we got pictures, if you want, you know. Oh, yeah, definitely. We have pictures, book yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, of these people and what they did and, you know. Yeah, Umbri was fabulous, really was. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know, and it, people don't go to Umbria. They go to, what's his name, you know. They the, go to Tuscany. Yeah, but I mean, you know, St. What's his name? Who liked the owls? Oh, right. Yeah. St. Francis. St. Francis. <laughs> oh, yeah. Was, was from Umbria. Yeah. But, you know, tourists didn't go to any of the other part of Umbria. And you're going to tell what she said? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a guide, a local guide. She was great. Mm. And she said, oh, it's a... Disneyland for priests and nuns. <laughs> she was fabulous, yeah. 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 So, you know, yeah. a lot of places I tend to want to do a lot of research on it wherever we're going. And, 
and if you do, you luck into things. You yeah. do luck into things, you know. It's a lot of work and, and yeah. some luck, but mostly her research makes a difference, uh, you know, for these trips. Uh, and you want a little coda that's a little funny? Sure. Okay, all right. So <laughs> this year we went to Philadelphia because of this guy who was the cheesemaker. And I really wanted to meet him, and I did, and he was wonderful. But um, because we didn't know what to do with ourselves besides going to a different restaurant every night, and I had some knitting that I was doing, and I wanted to go to a fabric store to get some tape. And we went to an old fabric store, and there was a young man there who looks a lot like you. And he was into what I was doing, and he said, you know, there's a really good knitting store near here. I've been to enough knitting stores, and I have more yarn than you would ever know what to do. This is a really good knitting store. So, okay, so we went to the knitting store. And here's this woman who has been to Bloodroot and who's a vegetarian and a lesbian. Okay, okay, that's nice. And she said there's a terrific new vegan uh, takeout place that isn't on your list because it's new, okay? And it's called Monster Vegan. Okay, what a name. And, and you couldn't just sign up for it. You couldn't just call them up and get it, and you couldn't go there. You had to be a known person. So she was a known person, and she ordered for us, and we went with her to get lunch. And it was the best meal we had in, in, in Philadelphia. Wow. The best vegan meal. We had another meal that was good that was uh, Thai, okay. But that was the best vegan meal that we had. So, I mean, these are these happenstance things that yeah. you don't know about until you fall into them like your trip to Bolivia. But that's a wonderful thing, you know. And, and if you look enough, you're going to find things that are that marvelous or something at least as good, if not better. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Uh, do you have one, Noah? I, I don't have anything to add to okay. that. <laughs> I really don't. That was fabulous. I, the Umbrian trip was amazing, and the, the food and the people there were truly wonderful. We stayed at an agri-farm, agri mm. and, uh, and they gave us uh, vegetarian food, and they had the animals, and uh, the whole place was beautiful. And they were very much environmentally conscious and putting in... Um, solar panels in the house that they were building next door. And the whole area is very environmentally conscious and very rugged, so beautiful. And the restaurant, that restaurant we went to with the beautiful big meal, um, was down these little winding roads. You know, only one car could pass at a time. And we, we went down the hill and around the corner and all that to get there. Um, yeah, we did. We got lost. And I was really glad it wasn't at night because <laughs> we didn't, you know, didn't know how, how we were going to do that. But anyway, we made it. And it was, it was really probably our best meal ever. And most of the time, you know... When she's having a good meal, I am too. Not always. <laughs> and, and then one of the things that I was thinking is some of my favorite meals are at Selma's house on Monday nights because she does um, her cooking, ex experimental cooking those nights. Oh. And yeah. And so we get like a preview and she and I and her person, woman who lives with her, Carol Ann, and, some, and sometimes Maya, who's our art person, we all go there and have excuse me, have these meals and, um, you know, think about would they work at the restaurant or not. It's not, it's not just for that purpose. It's really to have some experience of some kind of very diverse food. Yeah. And Selma cooks amazing things every Monday night. So, and wow. I get to go to that. So I put that on one of the top of my <laughs> list of favorites. Have, have you been there on a Monday? 
I have not. I haven't gotten that opportunity yet. Yeah. <laughs> but it's my birthday Monday, so oh. does that mean I get to? <laughs> yeah, this, sorry, no pressure. This coming Monday is your birthday? Yeah. This coming Monday? Two days. All right. Yeah, you're on. We can put you in. All right. Yeah. Ah, cool, cool. That's great. That's great. Yeah, so. Oh, that, yeah, that sounds really magical. Yeah, it, it, it is wonderful. It is wonderful. And it's a, a phenomenal. I mean, there'll be four or five different dishes on the table by the time she's done. And each one is individual and complex. And then she's got, if it's one complex dish, she's got like four or five different possibilities and vi- versions wow. and variations that she's thinking about and taking from this thing and that thing to end up with what? She wants. So, yeah, it's really, it's a very interesting and delicious evening. And we always have a little wine and it's, you know, it's nice. Wow. Yeah. Well, I will, you know, for everyone listening, they can just go to the application that they're in and I'll have a link to the website and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you. This is really cool. It's, <laughs> it's a pleasure to meet you both and an honor to share your story. So thank you. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Okay. It was good to talk to you. Yeah, I love to talk to people. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Hey, Voyagers, that is a wrap on episode 223 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This one was a real treat. I had a great time hanging out with them and talking and exploring the restaurant and the bookshop. So we will definitely be back at Bloodroot. And if you are ever in the area, I suggest you go there as well. All right, Voyagers, thanks for tuning in as always. And please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very, very soon.